Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today on the show, ringtones. So a ringtone is a utilitarian creature, right? It serves a need, which is to let you know that your phone is ringing. But of course, people are never content to do that. They need to personalize it, customize it, somehow or other make the ringtone an expression of who they are. Make certain ringtones also an expression of who the caller is. You can do that, obviously. When so-and-so calls, there's, you know, chicken noises, whatever. On the other hand, ringtones may also be a dying civilization. One thing we really discovered while working on this show is that, you know, it's just not cool to let your phone ring anymore. And of course, we love dying civilizations. So we'll go out to the frontier of ringtones and see whether it is receding. kind of a cell phone ringtone that somewhere in the back of your mind is kind of your default idea of an annoying ringtone. And one of the thing reasons you think it's so annoying, I'm convinced, is because of the movie Love Actually. If you're one of the 10 people who haven't, have never seen Love Actually, in it, one of the many characters, one played by Laura Liddy, has this guy she's in love with. She also has a brother who's institutionalized, I think with schizophrenia. I don't know if that's ever really said, but he calls her a lot on her phone and he's very needy. And he often calls at very inopportune times. And the most inopportune time of all comes when she is finally about to achieve an unexpected but much desired and sought after and fantasized about liaison with this very, very hunky guy from the office. And as things are getting pretty steamy, what do you hear? You hear this. Hello? Hi, hello, darling. No, no, I'm not busy. No, far away. I'm not quite sure it's going to be possible to get the Pope on the phone tonight, but... I've even seen tweets where people say, someone on this train has Laura Linney's cell phone, because that's what they, they just associate it with that like, incredibly annoying sound. So what's really interesting about this is it's not just a random annoying sound. It actually comes from a piece of music written in 1902. Hear that? So that's Francisco Tarrega. It's, it's called Grand Valse, which I'm pretty sure is Great Waltz, Big Waltz. I, I don't know. It's a waltz. And the reason it's there, according to Thomas Dolby, <laughs> who gets involved in this in a way that we're about to explain to you, is because Nokia suddenly came up with the idea of adding music to its phones in terms of ringtones. And then the lawyers told them it's got to be in the public domain. Whoever's music this is, they need to be long dead. 
And poor Mr. Torrega fell into that category. So here to talk more, the whole show today is about ringtones, how we deal with, personalize, customize, accept, reject these pretty ubiquitous noises in our lives that didn't even used to be anywhere. And here to get us going is Ernie Smith, the editor of Tedium, perhaps a very very fitting name for a conversation about ringtones. Uh, he's also a contributor to Vice's motherboard. So, you know, I mean, I'm really old. I'm way older than you are. I, I say this without even knowing how old you are, and I'm still very confident about it. So when I grew up, you know, my family had a phone. It rang. It made a ringing noise. It was a quiet, I would believe it was issued to us by the phone company. I don't even think there were too many other options other than just to take whatever the hell the phone company gave us, and it just rang however the hell it rang. And it was that way for many, many, many decades. So maybe you can say a little bit more about the history. I mean, the idea of the phone making a noise didn't start with smartphones. It didn't start with the mobile phones that preceded smartphones. So tell us a little bit more about what you learned of the history of this. I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, you kind of go all the way back to literally ringing a bell on on a standard telephone, you know, think Alexander Graham Bell and such. And it kind of, you know, it kind of evolved from there, you know, as, as technology improved, you know, there was, there was the possibility to take what was literally the manual process of ringing a literal bell and, you know, taking it digital. I think at the same time, there's also kind of a discussion to have here around, a lot of the freedom that you have to sort of choose your own ringtone sort of has a lot to do with the ways that the phone system evolved. And that kind of created situations where in the 70s and 80s, like you were actually kind of given more of a choice as to what you could do with a telephone. Like, you know, if you think about it, for example, before about the late 60s, Part of the reason why there wasn't really much choice involved in like how you could actually take a phone call was because it was locked down by the phone company, you know, AT&T, Bell, like they kind of had control over the whole system. And so you kind of have to look at things almost like the answering machine, which kind of made it possible to do sort of a reverse ringtone mm-hmm. <laughs> that you could like leave any noise for any of anybody dialing you. And then from there starting with the addition of the cellular phone, which obviously didn't have room for an actual bell to ring things. (laughs) There was a lot of, a lot more digital parts, you know, over time. Right. And and you mentioned, and I either had not known this or had forgotten it, not known, I think is a better bet, that there was a very significant decision during the 60s. I think it was called the Carter Phone Decision. It was another company that really did want to make equipment that would run on this otherwise monopolistic phone system, the so-called Ma Bell phone system. And they won, right? They won the right to make certain accessories that would operate on this otherwise pretty exclusionary system. And that was, I think you say, kind of the beginning of, of the process we're about to describe. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sort of it sort of changed everything. It's sort of where you get things like the modem, the answering machine. These things didn't really have a chance to happen until the Carter phone decision, which basically was somebody had invented a system that allowed a two-way radio system to connect to a phone system. Bell didn't like this. It led to an FCC decision that basically allowed for this piece of equipment to exist. And this was a kind of a small rooted decision that 
became sort of the foundation upon which the modern phone system exists, I guess you could say. <laughs> right. So we fast forward quite a few years ahead, and suddenly there are going to be mobile phones. There eventually are going to be smartphones. And so, you know, a big difference prior to that is, and I mean, part of my adult life because I'm so old, was spent with no mobile phones. And so I lived in a house where the phone would ring and I would answer it. But it wasn't a performative thing. I mean, you really had to be visiting me in my house to have any idea what my phone sounded like. And it didn't sound very different from most other phones. And that just sort of was the way things were. And then suddenly you're entering this new era where people are going to be carrying their phones around in their purses and their pockets. So other people, total strangers, friends, are going to hear the noise the phone makes. And that gets some of these companies interested in, in, well, what's that noise going to be? I mean, we have you know much broader choices. And so Nokia, although we've just played for you their super annoying but classically inspired default ring, they actually reach out for some help to an unlikely source. They reach out to this guy. So, Ernie, that's Thomas Dolby, for those who didn't get that. And Thomas Dolby is so much more than that one incredibly famous hit single. If you know his work, it's rich, it's complex. So they go to him. What, what more can you tell us about the involvement of a composer-performer like Thomas Dolby in something as techie as a cell phone ringtone? You know, it's really interesting about Dolby. His big album, the the album for which that song was on, was literally called The Golden Age of Wireless, which clearly he he must have predicted the future because uh, he was he was clearly actually a couple decades ahead of that time. But that said, one of the things that he had done starting in the 90s after his period of success as a pop star is he had started a company called Beatnik, which basically created a technology for reproducing audio and it showed up a couple places it actually showed up in the web tv back in the 90s the thing that microsoft sold as well as a bunch of website plugins and such and it was actually this thing that allowed for audio to be produced in very small files it could use actual samples of music but it was mostly just like what they call polyphonic sounds which basically allowed for audio to be played with multiple tones. If you had an early Nokia phone, it only played monophonic sounds, which basically were just very simple one one tone. But Dolby just happened to have this technology that he built, which allowed for a much broader sound palette, basically. And with the early 2000s craziness in the stock market, you know, he basically had this one contract with Nokia and it turned out to be the most valuable thing that he had for his company to like go forward with. And that led to this sort of explosive success of the ringtone. So there's so much more that goes on these days, including people who create their own ringtones. But there's also that whole idea that you could use existing music as ringtones. A lot of people do that. And as you point out, I had forgotten this, if I again, if I ever knew it, that I think up until 2014, Billboard for a while was running charts or a chart of the most popular ringtones. Yeah. And it was actually quite a big deal because back 
in the early 2000s, like around 2004, when they actually started this chart, this was seen as like kind of a big exploding industry. And it basically turned into this area where people could get like short, few second long snippets of their favorite songs. And basically those would be the things that people would play whenever they got a call from their significant other or pal of theirs or some such. And basically it was sort of a way to kind of show your personality to some degree. And the other thing that was kind of, that was kind of great about it was that for the music industry, it was actually, it was actually quite valuable because at one point, at one point, these songs actually sold significantly more than they actually sold in the iTunes store. Uh, It was like something like more than $2 for a ringtone versus, you know, 99 cents for a single song on iTunes. I mean, the other thing is it's hard to have this conversation right now because we spent so much time kind of out of the public sphere. I mean, the pandemic drove us into our houses. We weren't on subways so much. We weren't in crowded situations. We weren't hooking up with hot guys at Christmas parties the way Laura Linney does. And so, like, what our phones sounded like probably mattered less and less and maybe might start to matter more and more. Although it also seems like we started using our phones in other ways and the phones have started using us in other ways for notifications and for alarms. So now brace yourselves. If this is what I think it is, it's going to give me PTSD and it might do that for you. But an alarm doesn't have to sound bad. Here's the so-called early riser alarm from iOS 10. So, Ernie, our phones used to be things that just rang once in a while, and we answered them. But these days, our relationship with our phones is, if we're turning the volume on at all, it's a much more ongoing thing, right? The phone's trying to talk to us, give us notifications, telling us to get our butts out of bed. It's a more ongoing and permanent kind of conversation. So what can we say about that? Where, where does that point us? Yeah, you know, the thing is, I think that that, that, that alarm in particular is it, it's kind of a slightly evil but kind of beautiful piece of music. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, for, given something that like millions of people use every day, it's it's kind of it's kind of hilarious from that perspective that it sort of like has that role. And I think that in a lot of ways we have such a close relationship with our phones as kind of depressing as it is to say that in many ways when our phone barks at us. It's usually because we're waking up in the morning or, you know, we're doing some sort of other activity that requires it to make noise. And we're usually not doing that in a public space with like tons of other people around us. That's not necessarily to say that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's certainly not a traditional ringtone as we used to think of them in 2005, but I think that in, in many ways, it kind of speaks to the way that our phones have become much more a part of our daily routines and less like this useful device that like allowed us to take phone calls in, in a separate place. I mean, there's, you know, people obviously still do that, but phones have become so much more than that, that it kind of changes the conversation, both in terms of what noises it makes on a day-to-day basis, as well as what you're willing to put up with in that process. 
That was Ernie Smith, the editor of Tedium and a contributor to Vice's Motherboard. Dial again. Dial again. So one of the other shows we're working on right now is this show uh, about what's called Dunbar's number. This is a concept that says that the human ha- only has the cognitive capacity to maintain relationships with 150 people. That's the number. So if our show is a human being, then Brian Slattery is somewhere in that group of 150. Uh, <laughs> he is the arts editor of the New Haven Independent, a performing musician and recording musician, also a novelist. I mean, he's a Renaissance person, basically. So so it makes sense that he would have his own ringtone. Because <laughs> that's what polymaths do. They write their own ringtones. So say a little bit about that. Why, why did you, I mean, I can guess, but why did you you feel the need to compose a ringtone? It was, at first it was sort of practical is that, you know, there was a point where there weren't that many ringtones that people seemed to like. And it meant that when somebody's phone went off in a group of people, nobody knew whose phone was ringing. And all I wanted was to know if it was my phone. <laughs> so I figured <laughs> if I made a unique ringtone, then I would just know, well, it's, it's, it's either my phone or it isn't, right? Because nobody else has this ringtone. So that, that was really like the prime motivation was was just so I didn't have to reach into my pocket to see if it was me, you know? <laughs> so we should say that I associate you with, you know, stringed instruments and, and Balkan music and, and things yeah. like that. That's not what you decided to do in order to create this. No. So I had the idea. So I love the sound of old phones, you know, just, just like that, that really blaring bell, you know, which you can also get as a ringtone now. At the time you couldn't, but I wanted something that kind of reminded me of like the old analog bell, like that like sound that they made. And we have a piano in the house, and I'm not like an actual piano player by any means, but if I practice enough, I can play a thing that I want to play. <laughs> I just want to point out that Glenn Gould said exactly the same thing. If I, pra- <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I practice enough, I can play a thing that I want to play. So, uh, yeah, right. It's, I, mean, I guess that's technically true of everybody, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> not everybody. No, I could, I could practice a lot and still not be able to play what I want to play. So, no. Well, you know, uh, 20 years later. So, yeah, some of yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's what I would do with my Groundhog Day time, you know, if I were. Bill, <laughs> yeah, Bill exactly. Murray actually learns to play the piano, as I recall. Me, me too. Yeah. Me too. And the, <laughs> the great thing about ringtones is that, like, the, you know, the clip is, like, what, eight seconds long or something, right? So I only really had to get it right for eight seconds and then clip it and then make it so that it would loop around so that, you know, when it, if it goes around a few times, it sounds like a coherent musical (laughs) phrase. Like it. Yeah. I should say that playing that was really exhausting. Like, <laughs> it's it's very fast, and I, I didn't really realize what I signed up for when I first, first thought it was a good idea. <laughs> right. I feel like I hear the tiniest little bit of the piano lick. It's, there's a, there's a Brian Wilson tune that has that. I mean, it might I mean be... to me, it's kind of like low budget Philip Glass or something, right? <laughs> it's. <laughs> Because it's just so repetitive, and it's just this one little chord that moves. And I, I really like Philip Glass, I should say. Yeah. But it, he's kind of like he's easy to imitate badly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> so I'm what I'm wondering is, you know, Lucy Gelman and Tom Breen and God forbid Mark Oppenheimer are going to hear this. What if what if they want you? What do they say? Oh, well, write one for me. You know, I would totally, you know, it's, it's occurred to me that there's probably a cottage industry of people making cool ringtones. Right. Yeah. I mean, as an actually cool ringtone, as opposed to the things that I was making. It'd be kind of a great gig because you really only need you, know, you just need like a bunch of musical ideas and maybe like. I think that those only took me like an hour or something to do, like because they're so short, right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not very time consuming to make them. I, met, I imagine it's a lucrative industry. So you know, if anybody wants one, careful, I'll post, I'll careful. post my rates <laughs> and you'll see if yeah. you, it's how much it's worth to you. <laughs> well, that's beautiful, Brian Slattery. As usual, always fun to talk to. Arts editor for the New Haven Independent, performing and recording musician, novelist. He probably is inventing an electric car right now, even while he's talking to me. <laughs> I wish. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me anyway. Thanks, Colin. All right, let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we're exploring the idea of ringtones as music because, in fact, they are a sequence of notes. First of all, I want to introduce uh, the two guests for this segment, Sam Hadleman, who works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Hadleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn, and Paula Mathewson, composer and professor of music at Wesleyan University, who teaches experimental music and music technology and directs the Laptop Ensemble. So most of what's a ringtone is music. I should say that my phone has little kind of, I don't know, chime, a little wind chimey sound. except when my partner calls me. When my partner calls me, it goes And the only reason that she would know that is that I occasionally lose my cell phone and I'm looking all over. In fact, I, I spend 45 minutes every day looking for my smartphone. Time I'll never get back. But when I give up, I'll say, okay, call call my iPhone. And what happens is that the iPhone starts quacking and she's immediately re-offended by this whole idea. But so we use ringtones all kinds of different ways. So but maybe Paula Matthewson, maybe let's begin with the idea that, you know, if it's a sequence of notes, somebody had to write it, right? Correct. Yes. And I agree with so much of what you're saying, too, in terms of how we relate to it. There's the poignancy of when we tie it to specific people, right? 
But I also think in terms of, yes, the sequence of notes, most ringtones, when you get into it, have some sort of structure to them still, right? Like if you're talking from purely theoretical idea, like it starts from one note, maybe descends to another in a very short note, or maybe it's like, is some sort of sequence of sounds where there's maybe one note that's higher, for example, than others in relationship to it. So that is a thing that like through its repetition is meant to call attention to us because that is, it's the repetition that is also part of the structure of it, right? The phone that keeps ringing, for example. <laughs> um, so all these things sort of come to play in terms of whether we relate to it as like an individual sort of composition and then functionally as a duration, it becomes potentially something else. And so one example, for example, way back when was a piece by Golan Levin, which was the first piece I think of that was written explicitly for a symphony of, of cell phones, all ringing tones that were triggered according to a score. So I'm also wondering for you, you're somebody obviously very comfortable with electronic music. On the other hand, you're also somebody who, like most composers, have ears that are maybe a little bit more attuned to your sound environment than maybe the average person. So I don't know. What are, what are ringtones like for you? Are there some that are just nails against the blackboard? Well, they're the ones that through repetition association of them waking me up when I'd rather be sleeping, right? Like <laughs> my attention <laughs> isn't necessarily, but, you know, most things in that case would would bother me because my attention is not in a phase where I'm paying attention to it. It comes at me, in other words, as an interruption rather than as something that I want to listen to and therefore devote my energy to in that regard. It is the kind of thing that someone makes these, right? You mm -hmm. know, and so there is some element of craft in it a lot of times, even if people don't necessarily think of it that way. Right. Elsewhere in the show, we are going to be talking about the fact that Hans Zimmer, the great film composer and composer of other stuff, now has a deal with a Chinese smartphone company where he writes their ringtones. So, Sam, I feel like the era of downloading songs for ringtones is over, but I'm also feeling like you probably participated enthusiastically in that era when it was a little bit more in vogue. So, First of all, am I right about this? Do people have people stopped downloading 50 cent tunes or something for their for their uh, cell phone uh, rings? Yeah, you're about a decade late. Um, it's funny you bring that up because I think the first piece of music I ever bought was a ringtone and it was Kiss Kiss by Chris Brown and T-Pain. I was like so happy. I thought I was so cool on my MV3 and like all my friends like would show off their like different ringtones and we'd call each other in the lunchroom just to like show like, ooh, this is what song I have. This is what song I have. I kind of hate anybody who has like an interesting ringtone. I just think that's nuts. <laughs> like maybe it's just my own relationship with ringtones and tones, but I personally like if you're taking that much time to change up your ringtone and be different, like it irks me in public. I can't exactly describe why, but yeah, I think that era is over. Well, yeah, and Paula, to that to that point too, there's a way in which if you take an existing piece of music that was not written to be a ringtone, <laughs> was not composed by Hans Zimmer for a Chinese smartphone company, you're doing something to that piece of music by turning it into a kind of utilitarian and ambient 
unwillingly listened to thing? Maybe as a composer, you can talk about that. Well, that's an interesting question for me. I write for cell phones and pieces and things like that, but mm. then they're much longer and it's treating it as a sounding object that is, you know, this really this portable computer, everything device that like we're always carrying around with it. And it is something that therefore will make music with and has its own sonic possibilities in terms of using it as like excerpting other material. I think there's a certain amount of kind of, you know, signifying that goes on in that, right? Like, is it something that's recognizable? Like, what are you saying when this particular song goes off in the middle of a room? You know, like our you know, I use the duck quacking too. And I, I put it on as a joke initially, and then it, I just never changed it. <laughs> and so like, now it's just the kind of thing where I'll, like situationally, it's kind of funny. I'll be out camping and then all of a sudden there'll be a duck quacking in the middle of the tent and people think it's strange. Right. But like, I've found other people too are like, Oh, I use this bird. I use that bird. I use this bird. And I think there's something that people, our devices are so intimate now. So, but it is something that is both private and public, right? Like, if it goes off in a conference room, everyone hears it. So there's all these ways that it is performing, but we don't really have a vocabulary for describing that. Yeah, no, this is why you wouldn't want Johnny Paycheck's country song, Take This Job and Shove It, to be your ringtone in case it does go off in one of those conference rooms. And Paula, there's, you know, I want you to say a little bit more about the intimacy that we have with this thing. I mean, if McLuhan were alive, he would say basically people are carrying auxiliary versions of their brain around. You know, you're carrying around a thing that has more computing power than was used to send human beings to the moon the first time. It's in your pocket. It's next to your bed when you're sleeping. You know, so the thing that comes out of it, the noises that come out of it, I, I think sort of maybe join with your own neurology a little bit. Well, and it's also, it becomes part of our memory too, right? Like, I think there's something really intriguing about that. It's it's functional, it's daily, it's kind of this reminder. But like, you know, in the times when I've had ringtones for specific people and then I've lost those people, I hear those ringtones in other people's phones and it becomes this kind of jolt of memory, right? Um, where it's sort of not only just, it, it's someone else's relationship to that, but it triggers something very different in myself personally. And that's not something, again, that we really, you know, we're talking about devices, right? that are produced for mass consumption and use. And so certain assumptions are made in their design. With that, like, as well, right, is the fact then that we have certain little tiny portals that we can go through to kind of personalize it. Um, and so that's where you see these sort of expressions come out, right? Like that's, and that's very interesting to me. You know, other sort of areas in that, right, like would be the novelty car horn or, you know, <laughs> other things that are out there that have a function. But then we decide to sort of deviate from what the sort of assumed norms of them gradually become because other people decided them for the users that are using them. Right. That's so amazing. The thing that you said earlier on about people that you've lost, because I, I was doing kind of a little poll on Facebook about this whole topic. By the way, speaking of birds, I found one person who went into his own backyard chicken coop and just recorded the sounds uh, of the chickens. And then that became his ringtone. But I also heard from two different people who, not really apropos of the question that I had asked, had preserved the relationship with a someone who had died by being able to call that person's voicemail and listen to the voice, which, you know, obviously is very, very heartbreaking, but also kind of you know, very keyed to the technological moment we're in, that technology and emotions are kind of wrapped around one another. So, Sam, okay, so you said you wanted to talk more about the download ringtone era. Tell us what it was like to live in that era. 
It was a $6 billion market. And if you believe it, this article I found on this website called Trapital shows like T-Pain's profits for the year 2007. And 10% of the money he made in music was on ringtones. Imagine how like TikTok music works, like music that's primed for 15 to 30 second clips. The same thing happened with ringtones. Some of the famous ones you might know is This Is Why I'm Hot by Mims, Anything by Soldier Boy, Laffy Taffy by D4L. It was just songs that were made specifically to be turned into ringtones. And it was kind of like in that right before streaming came in. So a lot of artists were making tons of money off this. It was kind of like a forgotten era of really big T-shirts and crooked hats. But was the T-Pain ringtone some kind of auto-tune thing? Short yeah. A? Short yeah. A? Oh, oh, uh, it was Buy You a Drink or uh, I'm Sprung. Um, but yeah, these songs, like, again, $6 billion global market. Can you imagine that in 2007 for ringtones? I'd rather not imagine it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we, we're going to have to wrap up here, but we want to thank Sam Haddleman, works in the music public relations business, hosts the Sam Haddleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Paula Mathewson is a composer and a professor of music at Wesleyan University, teaches experimental music and music technology, and directs the Laptop Ensemble. I must know more, but on a future date. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. It's time to say thank you. And we've been working on this show for so long that many of the people who helped us, I'm pretty sure, have subsequently left the company and joined the Mars colony where they're starting a new life amid all those beautiful canals. But the people who are still left around with us include Kat Pastor, Jean Amatruda, Dylan Reyes, Lily Tyson and Jonathan McPants, those last two in particular, have been the driving force in this 82-year project to do a show about ringtones. So one of the questions that we've had all along about ringtones is, to what degree do they represent music? I mean, there are arrangements of notes. And why would anybody really begin to care about how they sound? Here to talk a little bit more about that is Sumanth Gopanath, Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of Minnesota and the author of The Ringtone Dialectic, Economy and Cultural Form. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So you mentioned, and I hadn't seen it at the time, although I will say that my freshman counselor when I was in college was a fellow named Gary Trudeau, but I hadn't seen the Doonesbury uh, comic panel where one of the characters actually becomes, a character named Jim becomes a ringtone artist, and he explains, there's a haiku-like economy of form that appeals to me. You can pack a whole world into those two seconds. So, you know, one of the gifts of Gary Trudeau is he often creates fictional versions of things that people really are talking about in real life. How far from reality is the quote I just read? Are there people who have worked at some point in the last 20 years in this field who would say something like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I really cared about in my book project was thinking about the actual labor of making ringtones. And so I think my take from what I remember of the Gary Trudeau comic was that it was sort of a satirical take on the idea of it and trying to sort of, I think, poke fun at the idea of economy and, and brevity, which is also kind of part of the pun of my subtitle of the book, Economy and Cultural Form. And I think in a way, what he emphasizes is that there are people who are trying to make, you know, sort of original art and who have 
the ability to be able to, to do that or be able to promote their work in that way by using it as a concept. And some people did definitely do that. I, I spent a lot of time with the catalog of the Ringtone Records label by Bryce Salick and sort of thought about the different kinds of forms that were involved and was in fact really impressed with his creativity. But I will say that the vast majority of people who were doing Ringtone's work at the peak of the economy were not people who were empowered to make their own creative decisions, but they were instead kind of essentially transcribing pre-existing songs or just editing sound clips for decent amounts of money, depending on whom you worked for and how it looked. But so I, I guess I would say Trudeau was sort of onto something. And at the same time, because the ringtones industry blew up into this massive thing for a short period of time, neglected to sort of think of the I don't know how you might describe it, but the kind of skilled proletariat of ringtone laborers who were kind of out there transcribing, you know, music on MIDI synthesizer arrangements, you know, or editing sound files to be distributed to wholesale firms that were selling them to wireless distributors to get to consumers. So let's talk about that industry blowing up into what it became and then blowing back down too, I think is also interesting. But if McLuhan were alive today, he would be really interested in this. You know, what's going on technologically? What kinds of changes in the hardware and software of media are happening so that you would suddenly get a thing that didn't exist before? It just wasn't even a thing. And suddenly it would have this incredibly rapid growth, this whole idea of ringtones, either standardized or, or customized. So what kinds of factors are creating that perfect storm? There are a lot of possible elements to this. Certainly one, and to maybe to take the kind of McLuhanite side of things would be to what extent the technology determined the sort of social phenomenon. And so on that side of things, just the fact that phones started basically in the late 90s, Nokia and other companies developed connections between the short messaging service and being able to upload essentially, you know, ringtones that were programmed melodies or effects based on a kind of monophonic synthesizer setup. And then the fact that it could be, you know, monetized into a business and that Vesa Mati Pananan, who's, who's much discussed in the history of the development of the ringtone is a key figure in all of this. So those sorts of things, I think it's not only a technical relation, but the technical thing and then the kind of the way that the business could monetize it, that was sort of, I would say, a key factor. But that's not the only thing. I mean, a lot of people who were interested in thinking about the ringtone when they wrote about it emphasized the degree to which it was related to personalization. The mobile phone was something that was tied to your identity. It was something that you increasingly spent so much time with and that you communicated through much of the world with. And so, you know, the ringtone would therefore, at least the claim was that it became charged as this form of self-expression. And I, I guess to step back from that, an aspect of my book is to think critically about that and to say, well, maybe people didn't necessarily invest quite the degree of, you know, self-definition in ringtones that people sometimes suggested. They were often in-jokes or they were just random things or, you know, spur-of-the-moment interests that could change from week to week. So personalization wasn't necessarily as sort of foundational as it might one might assume. That said, I think whether or not one emphasizes the personalization argument, what you can say is that the mobile phone was developing a vast arrays of cultures of use because it was becoming such a, a, a prevalent commodity that was being used so extensively. 
many people, I know Howard Rheingold and others were in the early 2000s sort of interested in mobile and digital youth cultures, the fact that people could use them to do things like flash mobs and or organize protests or, or what have you. And many other people wrote about that kind of thing at that time. So one might say that, you know, youth cultures, if you look at Manuel Castell's work, were a big part of the story. A lot of young people were sort of trading and sharing ringtones, showing them to each other. Some argue that a lot of this sort of stems from an influence from East Asia and particularly Japan with pagers that had similar kinds of features in the 90s. Anyway, so I guess there's the sort of technical and business side of things. And then there was the kind of prevalence of the commodity and the cultures of use that surrounded it. And I, I would say those are two major factors. And then maybe the third factor was as the phenomenon developed, the facets of the music industry got very involved and they started to basically see that there was a lot of money to be made first in publishing and then eventually in sort of other sorts of copyright royalty rates that were had to be specially negotiated to give access to you know master recordings of, of songs once the ringtone format changed from synthesizer files to digital sound files that sort of awareness I would say was another kind of maybe market push side element of the story where these catalogs that these labels and publishing firms have are assets and these uh, industries are looking to find ways to quote unquote sweat them and to make money off them. And that's still a, a kind of part of the story even today with the world of digital audio streaming on subscription services like Spotify and what have you. And I think in certain ways, the ringtone was a part of that story that combines the use of the, that large catalogs to basically, you know, milk them for money in all sorts of contexts from digital media like ringtones to sync licensing on television and film to video games or what have you. And, and there's a way in which I think, as you're suggesting, for a couple of generations, you know, millennials and Z at minimum, phones started to become kind of like what cars were in the 60s. If the Beach Boys were alive today, they'd be singing songs about, you know, iPhone 11s or something, uh, right. you know, because that, that be, they became status markers. They became sources of identity and, and stuff like that. Although when you get to that, then one of the things that comes up is if you're hanging out with your group, the group that you belong to, if I'm hanging out with the group that I belong to and my phone goes off and my T-Pain ringtone is ringing, you know, well, that's fine there. The problem is that we're carrying phones around into all kinds of situations. So, mm -hmm. you know, famously, Emma Watson of uh, Harry Potter fame was being interviewed on television Dark and her phone went off. And, um, so it's sort of a weird contrast. That is so embarrassing. That is my phone. That's Tina Turner. That's ultimate respect. Um, I think that's probably the that's, best ringtone I've ever heard. Thank Sorry. you. Well, Steamy I'm window. glad I'm forgiven because it's Tina Turner. It's all right. Otherwise, it's all right. that would have been terrible. But she was very embarrassed, right? Because there's a way in which context is very important in terms of ringtones and who hears them. Absolutely. And so this sort of gets to the story about the sort of backlash against ringtones and social spaces. I know one of the types of things that I was interested in when writing the book focused on the ways that ringtones would show up in, in concerts and classical concerts in particular, since that's, you know, my background is in, in that kind of music. And so, you know, you have a very quiet passage in a Mahler symphony or something, and this ringtone goes off and it won't go off. And in one of the stories I tell, you know, the, the conductor just stops the concert <laughs> until they get to, they figure out how to, 
how to get this person's ringtone to go off. And then they finally get it turned off. It's someone who's is not less technically familiar with how it worked and how to manage it. And then they went back and started part of the piece again, which is, I mean, whatever, this is the, the temple of classical music has its own absurd and problematic social relationships and dynamics. But it's fascinating to see that kind of thing happen there or in, you know, plays, movie theaters, what have you, you know, and like, I didn't know the Emma Watson story, but that's a great one. And it, it suggests that because you've got this thing that often can be a kind of private in joke for yourself or something that's amusing for you, that's maybe the sort of weird dialectic of the fact that the phone is something personal to you, but it's also in, in mo- oftentimes in public and social space. And so what's for you is then it's kind of broadcasting out and becomes for other people. And I guess for that reason, and plus for the reason that many people started to spend more and more time on their mobile phones, plus, you know, other factors that I haven't totally kind of been able to discern, maybe, uh, you know, if they were noise ordinance violations, there were sometimes you talked about the young person playing T-Pain, well, if they were doing so on a car or, or especially on a, on a public transit vehicle, this might actually be sort of seen as some kind of social impropriety that stages conflicts between young people, maybe young working class people or people of color and older writers. This was a phenomenon that I think Dan Hancock, if I remember his name correctly, wrote about in the UK called sod casting, where people were essentially using their mobile phones as kind of public boom boxes, tinny, crappy sounding public boom boxes. Anyway, but then, so for these reasons, there was a kind of move and among many other reasons too. I mean, people often talk about younger people, the sort of millennials and Gen Zers not being comfortable talking on the phone, much more comfortable texting and communicating that way. People just have increasingly left their phone on silent. And so the ringtone kind of was in some ways a victim of its own success as it was saturating, you know, social space and you could hear the Nokia tune all the time around you. Eventually, there were enough countervailing forces to to lead people to start shutting them off. And I think that's more or less the moment we're in now still. Well, we have to stop there, but Samantha Kopanath, an associate professor of music theory at the University of Minnesota, author of The Ringtone Dialectic, Economy and Cultural Form. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. As we started to put this show together, I discovered that Hans Zimmer, who's really one of the preeminent film composers and has won multiple Oscars, just collected, I think, his second Oscar for Dune. But, you know, the Dark Knight movies, The Lion King, Inception, Gladiator, you name it, that he is, in addition to all of that, composing and has composed ringtones for a Chinese smartphone company called Oppo. And so here to talk about that is our music savant, Steve Metcalf, the founder and director of the Garmini Concert Series at the University of Hartford's Hart School, now in its 13th season, and a composer in his own right. And you've heard him also perform many times on our show. So maybe begin with this. I mean, I think Zimmer has a little bit of a reputation, Steve, for incorporating electronic music into orchestral music. Certainly not the only person, but is it fair to say that maybe the kind of composer who 50 years ago would be composing for strings and winds and brass and traditional percussion is probably a little bit more familiar with electronic music in 2022? Yeah, I think if they want to make a living, they have to be I mean, Zimmer, I think, you know, gets credited for being maybe the first or certainly among the first of the big 
successful mm-hmm. film composers to incorporate the sound of an orchestra with the sound of electronics and choirs and, you know, all the tricks that a modern studio can do. And, you know, he really is a master, I have to say, at creating, what can we call it, atmospheres. You know, he, he creates these, these kind of sound worlds that I think the rest of the film composing industry has has kind of liberally borrowed from his insights here, you know, to say the least. So in that respect, I think Zimmer is probably the right choice to think about this whole notion of ringtones as a thing that people carry around with them. All right. So let's get right down to it and see, let's hear how he did. So here's Hans Zimmer's Apo ringtone. So you have way better ears than I do, but it sounds to me like he did it right there. There's a chiming sound, and then there's what sounds like legit strings. Yeah, and I would only say, and not not to be a jerk about this, but I mean, I I would only say that that would be, I think, a nice ringtone to hear just before you pick up and learn that you're getting a huge refund on your on your tax return this year or something like that. I'm not sure it's the sound you want to hear just before the guy comes on and wants to sell you an extension on your car warranty. But I mean, that's the weird thing about ringtones is that, you know, they they have to serve every, every purpose for every call, you know, but there's no doubt that that's a very captivating little sonic statement that Hans made there. Right. And, and I mean, when we get right down to it, is there a ringtone we would want to hear before the guy tries to extend our Subaru warranty? Probably nothing would, would soften the, the abrasion of that. It seems to me what he's done there, too, is it's pretty anodyne, right? I mean, the other thing you don't want, you know, as much as you might like having, I don't know, the bang on a can all-stars do your <laughs> ringtone, you don't really necessarily want something that you're going to have to deal with, right? It's got to be sort of bland enough so it doesn't kind of disrupt your your whole mental state. Yeah, of course, as you have cruelly pointed out over the years, I am one of those people who, if I hear just even a little snippet of music, (laughs) it hardly matters what it is. You know, it sticks in my mind sometimes for days. You, You know that you have, you know, in a very unkind way, taken advantage of that over the years. But you know, you're right, which is which is one of the things about ringtones, I think, that people are still talking about. I mean, there was a there was a time, what, a, two or three years ago, or maybe a little bit more now, when everybody thought that each owner of a of a smartphone would have their own distinctive tone, you know, and you maybe you'd buy it for a couple of bucks or something. And then if you got sick of it, you'd buy another one. I'm not quite sure that's really happening anymore. Maybe Maybe this Zimmer thing will help kind of resurrect the idea of everybody with their own personalized tone. Well, you could do it, right? You could compose your own ringtone, and that would be your ringtone. And yes, not only are you incredibly susceptible to having earworms planted in your head, and yes, I have done that very cruelly many times on numerous occasions, but you're also kind of exquisitely sensitive to music. I mean, I would imagine an awful lot of ringtones would be really troubling to you in maybe a way that would be more than the average person would experience. So, and you can write music. Have you ever thought about just writing your own ringtone? 
not until this show, but now I'm definitely working on it. <laughs> there we go. So let's hear Hans Zimmer's alarm. I still have on my iPhone that like really terrible. That's what I have for the alarm. Here's what Hans would have us have. I don't know if you somebody has to wake you up or tell you to get moving that, or something. That's already in my head now, and I, I <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to listen to some Mahler or something to get rid of it. Well, I first of all, I don't know how exquisite my you know antennae are on this, but I can tell you that after experimenting with a few ringtones, I had to go with the crickets that iPhones offers as one of the non-musical options. Because it isn't music and because it was the only way to kind of make sure that this wouldn't bother me for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. So, <laughs> Yeah, so well, that, that is an option, right? If you're musically sensitive, maybe you don't want music, maybe you want crickets. As we come to the end of this, I mean, one of the things that we do know is that, and this came up on, on another one of my shows recently, as it does a lot, is that composers of serious music, not so much Hans Zimmer, Hans is going to be okay, but, you know, it's a tough world these days. It's a tough world for orchestras and chamber groups and, and duos with names like Boyd meets girl. And so, I mean, maybe this kind of work, I don't know, Michael Bolton was literally starving to death and his family was having their heat cut off and everything like that. And ultimately he started doing some work in commercials and he called it the money tree. You know, suddenly they were okay. Maybe for some composers, it's not a bad idea to take a gig like this. And maybe, Steve, they make the world better when they do it. You know, there, there just isn't a revenue stream, honestly, for a lot of these composers. And, you know, you can be one of the handful of billionaires like Zimmer who write for movies and they get between the six or eight of them, they get like 90% of the work. But there's everybody else to think about, you know. So these things that might have sounded sort of silly a while ago are not quite so silly anymore. All right. And, and that's a perfect place for us to end. We're talking to Steve Metcalf, founder and director of the Garmony Concert Series at the University of Hartford Hart School, now in its 13th season, a composer and songwriter in his own right. He's one of those six or seven guys that the movies go to. Uh, and he's certainly the person we always go to at times like this. Steve, thanks once again. Thanks for having me. See you. 